Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. FPR's Madison Conference ended with a session looking to life outside the machine. Ashley Colby shares some of the countercultural gems unearthed through her Doomer Optimism podcast. To the mock dismay of the audience, she uses a PowerPoint presentation, a sin Ashley atones for by welcoming several of her subjects to the room in flesh and blood. And as is tradition, the conference closes with, dare I call it this, machine gun wit and wisdom from Bill Kaufman. Of course, his fire is always aimed at the big and monotonous in defense of the small and unique. Rory Groves, author of Durable Trades, introduces the speakers. Great. Well, we thank you so much to all of our speakers today. I know that I've got a notebook full of things to uh, chew on after on my drive back tonight. Uh, My name is Rory Groves. Uh, I'm a little bit of the outsider in this cast of characters known as Front Porch Republic. I was introduced a couple years ago to Mr. Jason Peters by Alan, via Alan Carlson, who was here with us earlier, is not here now. I, uh, I had a manuscript and I had kind of was in over my head and didn't know where to turn. So Alan introduced me and the, the folks here at Front Porch Republic decided to take a gamble on an unpublished author who was trying to run an experiment. I wanted to know if it was possible to live as an agrarian without being a tenured English professor. (laughs) The results are still pending, I'll just say. But I wrote a book called Durable Trades. It's done really well in the sense that I've had some great encouraging feedback from other folks who are also like you, trying to seek out another direction. I came as a uh, computer scientist background not as familiar with the academic academy or, or the, the world as, as many folks are here, but as I like to say, I'm more of a practitioner than a theoretician. The talks that we've been sharing here today have reminded me how much of when we moved to the country several years ago, and I started to get to know some of our neighbors who were multi-generational, fourth, fifth generation farmers. What occurred to me was not just how much they knew about the land and about farming, but how they didn't know how much they knew. It was like this knowledge was incorporated and accumulated through the generations. And they're actually putting into practice so many of the principles that we're articulating today, but they don't even know how to articulate them. I don't know if you've experienced that. Friends of mine that are here with me today are from an Anabaptist community and they're living right in the heart of Amish country in Wisconsin. And we've been talking about that, just how much wisdom there is in the practicing of these principles. And so when you put them into practice, there's almost an automatic drawing out of the deep truths of the earth, right? It says that the forests of the trees shall clap their hands and the mountains will break forth in singing. And I like to say that they also have truths to teach us, truths that confound the wise. That's the one hopeful thing. There's so much great information, and it's hard to fit it all in our heads today. But if we can go home and put it to practice, just a little bit of it. The wisdom that the world was built on will begin to unfold in your own life and hopefully in the lives of your children as well. So without going on and on here, I'd like to introduce our speakers for the final panel today, which is on 
living outside the machine. That's the reason I'm up here. Jeff Bilbro, when he saw that I was coming up to the conference, he said, hey, Rory, you're someone that's living on the fringes of industrialism. Why don't you come and share the final topic here today? So I'm grateful for that opportunity. It's nice to meet you all and be with you. Our first speaker, as she informs me today, is Ashley Colby. And Ashley is an environmental sociologist whose work focuses on the myriad creative ways in which people are forming new social worlds in resistance to the failures of the late industrial era. Ashley founded the Rizoma Field School, which offers experiential study abroad in Uruguay and post or post-secondary students. Our second speaker this afternoon is Mr. Bill Kaufman, who is the author of 11 books. He's also a columnist for the American Conservative and the Spectator World. And I'm told, according to some outdated Wikipedia entries, he also likes to torture butterflies and fly kites in the nude. So <laughs> we'll just let you know Q&A will be at the bar following. So don't ask those questions at the end of this session. That was the old thing. That was the old Pre-converted. Pre Without further ado, this Ashley Colby, would you please... I'm going to use a PowerPoint differently. I know. Don't boo me. Don't boo me, okay? Um, all right. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, I kind of accidentally founded a podcast called Doomer Optimism. I'm not really here as like a commercial for that. I'm just drawing from it, but you know, it's, a, it's, it's the inspiration for this talk today. I'm going to talk about life adjacent to the machine, not outside of it. I don't think it's possible to really be outside of it. And I think there's a little bit of a, like a purity politics that comes with trying to be completely outside because, you know, you try to do anything at all and people say, oh, you're faking it. You're a fake homesteader. You know, you're home. What, you know, who do you think you are kind of thing? And so I'd like to just talk about, you know, living in this constant tension between the machine and whatever the alternatives are. I got a clicker here. Okay, so this is a funny graph but it kind of helps, this is energy. It kind of helps set the scene for what I, some of my assumptions, which are, you know, basically all of human history. We've had muscle and firewood as energy. And then here in the industrial revolution, we had a huge amount of energy. And afterwards, who knows? Question mark. So the upshot of this is that we're facing some mater real material limits. And the other upshot, is that there's all sorts of weird like ennui and alienation that that happens in this era so there's just some assumptions about what i think to define the machine because it's a it, we shouldn't just all assume we we know what we mean by that topic okay so alternatives and and i'm going to show you some alternatives some of the people are here today i'm going to make you raise your hands i want to just warn you these alternatives like maybe in some way seem weird or quaint. These are, these are people who have been guests on my podcast, but have an open mind and think of them not as a, like a straight template, but, you know, inspiration. What can you pull from, from these ideas? Okay. First alternative is Jeff McFadden. I don't know if any of you are on Twitter, but he's the donkey guy. He says, the faster you go, the more you miss. He rides around in a donkey driven carriage on purpose. He like wants people to see him. He wants to go slow. 
Um, he says we need to reduce our scale, and the way to do this is to reduce our speed. Right now, I'm making a trip in one town trip a week by donkey drawn buggy. You know, he's like obviously going to Walmart or something. There's a cart, <laughs> um, but you know, this is this is adjacent to the machine, right? He's you know he's he's being a weirdo, but on on purpose, um, but not a weirdo from 150 years ago. You know, so Peter Allen, raise your hand back there, a Wisconsin farmer from the Driftless region, started this farm called Mastodon Valley Farm. And he's an ecologist, I think by training, is a good enough way to put it, PhD. And he, he was you know, basically looking at how mastodons were a keystone species in North America, um, sort of held back the growth of woody understory, made for this ultra diverse and dynamic landscape, including groves of fruit and nut bearing trees. And he thought basically, how can I do ecological restoration like a mastodon? Which is a weird question to ask, but very cool. So he's trying to restore functioning oak savanna ecosystems with kind of himself, human as the, as the keystone species, you know, just sort of kind of like indigenous American, Americans did um, using fire. So in the modern market economy, that means the creation of a farm. So he's, this is a picture of his farm. He's got this diverse landscape, grazing animals, deer, cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, turkeys, chickens, and he's sort of attempting to mimic the grazing and browsing of horses and sloths and camels and mastodons. This like wild, it's like, you know, take the, the wild optimism of, of the technologist and put it to diverse landscapes. It's like, this is what comes of it, this, a Peter Allen type. Ask him also, if he goes to the bar after, I don't know if you're going, uh, about his idea of bringing elephants to the Midwest to reef, deforest and make oak savannas again in the way the mastodons did. So ask him about that. You catch him. Roxanne Ahern was, uh, is a big friend of the podcast. She runs this. She wrote a book called Happy Holistic Homestead. She runs a website. She really wants to think holistically. So characterized by the comprehension of the parts of, of something as intimately interconnected. You can't pull them apart again. So she thinks a lot about human health, nutrition as connected to permaculture, homesteading, homeschooling, sort of seeing the ways in which all of these things are connected. Katura's right here, making lace for her own wedding dress this entire time. She just hosted a class called the Living Room Academy. This is her living room. And she invited young women into her home to learn how, learn how to cook from scratch, hand sew, embroider, create a skirt out of a bed sheet, which is so cool, knit and alter men clothing, make butter and cheese. And she also taught them how to be hospitable, to literally just invite guests into your home. And she, I don't know if you did it on purpose, Katura, you had people randomly show up. People also randomly show up in her home. So to just be able to, you know, serve people guests and be hospitable when people just show up. I mean, the, the culture is now with millennials. It's like, if someone rings your doorbell, you like hide. So she's like, you know, <laughs> we, we, some of us grew up with this, with this kind of thing. The door is always open for, for people to, to come by. This family in Alaska, I think, would be the most outside of the machine. They bought land undeveloped in Alaska, sight unseen, 
and I think um, grab some catalytic converters out of a junkyard to buy a landing craft to get onto their land. Anyways, they've been there a couple of years and they've built all this stuff, uh, two whole outhouse smoker. And there's this picture here of uh, Shay, who is processing bear meat with a toddler on her back, which is so cool. And here is Shay, this image isn't great, but she, this, this caused an uproar on Twitter. And then I wrote about it for Unheard. She's washing their laundry in the, in the river and people were like, oh, the patriarchy of that. And she was like, I wanna be doing this. They don't have running water yet. They plan to do a rainwater catchment system. They wanna get yaks instead of a tractor. The only difference is the yak can't go, go quite as fast. So this is similar to the donkey guy, just slow, just slow it down. And just by being rural conservatives, this is really like what a degrowth lifestyle looks like. Posterity Cider Works is a really interesting example. These guys started a, their husband and wife team out of Northern California. They do locally foraged ingredients. So they try to like find exceptional specimens to put in their, their cider. They're trying to think in time scales greater than their own lifespan. Recently, they've, they just kind of pull fruit from abandoned orchards. They are in multiple Michelin starred restaurants, including one of the best 50 restaurants in the world. So it's like high end level of the podcast. And they intentionally take their kids with them to work, which is another thing to be really intentional about. You know, how does a family fit into this? How does intergenerational work fit into this? And there's our little helper testing the apple. It's not just rural. There's one of the, the founders of the podcast started a company called Greenbox out of Atlanta in urban areas to try to help people think about how to use their yards, rainwater gardens, perennials, annual food gardens, small livestock, you know, anywhere you are, you can be doing something. We've got one Brit in the, in the mix in this podcast. We've got a couple of Brits who come on the podcast regularly, but Kev, he's a, he's a Finnish carpenter and he kind of is really intentionally also raising his kids to be able to be with them and to, to do work in a way that incorporates children. And he's, you know, really big involved in his community too. It's being productive isn't just making things with your hands. You can be per, a productive member of your community as well. We have a friend of the podcast in Los Angeles who works in a big tech company. So probably one of the big ones. He never told me which one, but he said specifically, he's skeptical of a society where human beings are driven by technology for technology's sake should be the ones controlling technology in order to shape and improve the world. Technology should be put in service of the earth, not the earth destroyed for technology. It's his little backyard in LA, which I think is really cool. Josh Helling is here all the way in the back. You're not gonna be able to see him. He's also Wisconsinite, kind of similar to Peter and his approach um, in terms of human as apex predator and the livestock as prey. But you can see here a picture of the restoration work he's done in his land. This is when he got it. And this is, you know, after intentionally grazing the animals in a way that restores the landscape. So he's, you know, they have a, they have a farm. They also have a homestead. They're focused on regeneration, but they also are just suburban parents with day jobs. So, you know, a foot in both worlds, I think is, is okay. You know, no one, we don't need to do the purity policing stuff. Okay, so I'm gonna end with Josh's quote to put him on the spot because I thought it was really good and, I, and he's a very thoughtful guy. We're using this time, and by we, he means him and his family, 
As the machine leaks more and makes funnier and funnier noises, to find and cultivate smaller systems on our land that can produce food and fiber and energy with shorter and simpler dependency chains. But to, to Josh, that's really the point of it all. If the machine continues to run somehow, it's going to get more and more odious. I don't think that its continued operation is, a, is at all a certainty. I see our work here as trying to build some optionality around future machine participation. So again, are you participating or not? You've, building out those options is smart. Laying groundwork for being able to do an infinitesimally small part of meeting people's post-machine needs. So I think that's basically it. The takeaway is there's not really a you versus the machine. You know, we're, we're children of it. We're adjacent to it. There's no way to return, really. So we just need to keep evolving as all humans have done. Find your people or convert people. Convert through your joyfulness and, and interest in them. And be able to see resistance everywhere, I think, is another takeaway. It really is in little pockets everywhere, and, and you can embody that. So that's it. Thanks. Thank you. Once again, I'm the uh, light-hitting shortstop stuck at the bottom of the order. I don't know what my walk-up music should be. Uh, maybe we got to get out of this place. Um, <laughs> it's better, actually, than Jeff Paulette's, which he let slip to us this past summer. Could This Be the Magic by Barry Manilow? <laughs> Sweet Melissa. Really? Swear to God. As a Frankie Valley song goes, which is probably another one of Jeff's favorites. I'm honored to be here on the home ground of the Wisconsin School of Anti-Imperialist American Historians. In their refractory and refreshing independence, these ghosts of Madison show us one way to subvert the machine. Take William Appleman Williams, favorite historian of the middle American New Left, an Eagle Scout, basketball star, jazz drummer, and paperboy, bred in Atlantic, Iowa, whose highway sign welcoming visitors or the Jeffersonian motto, the government which governs least governs best. Williams, who used to unnerve his graduate students by fiddling with his US Naval Academy ring while pitilessly dissecting the American empire, fit perfectly within the American populist tradition of the University of Wisconsin. His patriotic anti-imperialism, in the words of his biographer and UW-trained historian Paul Buell, can be traced to growing up in a town of judges handing down suspended sentences for theft of food, theater managers looking away when the kids open the back door for their poorer friends, and storekeepers keeping a tab that they rightly suspected would never be paid. In 1968, Williams left Madison for Oregon State to, in Buell's words, teach undergraduates, live by the ocean, and live in a diversified community of ordinary Americans. Not that Madisonians aren't ordinary. Uh, maybe they're extraordinary. As he moved off center, taking a stand in the hinterlands, Williams called for a return to the Articles of Confederation and a radical dispersion of political and economic power a decentralist socialism that probably looked better in cooperative theory than it would have in barbed regulation practice. He was of the left yet speaking to the right, trying to find that little egalitarian village where the shopkeeper and the jazz musician and the carpenter might live in liberty and fraternity. Williams explained himself with a story from his boyhood. 
I stole a very fine and expensive knife from the best hardware store in town. My maternal grandmother, Maud Hammond Appleman, discovered what I had done. She confronted me with the question, did you steal the knife? Yes, I stole the knife. Why? Because I wanted it, because I liked it, because I can use it. She said, the knife is not yours. You have not earned it. You will take it back. I said, I can't do that. She said, you will do that now. Oh my, the moral force of the declarative sentence. <laughs> and so I walked along those long and lonely blocks to the store and in through the door and up face to face with a member of that small community who owned the store. And I said, I stole the knife and I'm sorry and I'm bringing it back. And he said, thank you. The knife is not very important. But you coming down here and saying that to me is very important. Remembering all that, I know why I do not want the empire. There are better ways to live and there are better ways to die. That's what we can learn from Madison, 1968. If the Williams flavored New Left ultimately lost out to the bomb happy rich kid weatherman faction, as well as to the social democratic weenies who would graduate from SDS into permanent space fillers in academe, well, that only confirmed the eternal truth that the worst people rise or claw or suck their way to the top of any large enterprise. That's why we keep FPR small. As the late Carl Hess, Goldwater speechwriter turned wobbly anarchist and cheerful exponent of anti-politics like to say, Adolf Hitler as chancellor of Germany was a nightmare. Adolf Hitler at a town meeting would just be an asshole. <laughs> <clears throat> Madison was also the home of Robert Gard, the Kansas-born Johnny Appleseed of American grassroots theater, whose dramaturgical evangelism elicited dozens of plays written and performed by unlettered rural people, dramas and comedies about the stuff of their lives. Gard understood, as Robert Frost said, that locality gives art. But these promising experiments in Wisconsin, North Dakota, upstate New York, and elsewhere were casualties of the Second World War, as homegrown plays on country stages gave way to frenzied writing on wartime themes. After the war came television, and we had to make do with Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies. Cooperative theater, uh, spirit of the rural theater movement was embodied in the Pulitzer Prize winning Wisconsin writer Zona Gale, who in 1912 wrote an entertaining one act play, The Neighbors, and offered it royalty free to any country theater group as long as the cast promised to plant either a shade tree in the community or a fruit tree by the roadside. That's beautiful. Zona, what a gale. William Appleman Williams. Those were Americans. That spirit's not gone yet. There are hopeful signs, rural plants pushing up through the rubble. Even in my little town, which outsiders might think I overpraise if I call it unprepossessing, we have two family-run community-supported agriculture farms, two locally-run coffee shops, and we are not a college town. I've only seen one, in this house we believe in science, yard sign. 
We have two bars brewing and selling their own beer. The craft beer thing is much mocked, but it inculcates homeward-looking habits and is a nourishing manifestation of DIY. The loyalty that both sippers and topers show to local beers is a true blue example of patriotism of place, much healthier and more genuine than allegiance to professional sports teams. I say hypocritically as a Bills fan. Since me, better than the Packers. <laughs> Oops, I mean the Lions. Since Major League Baseball abolished the minor league that was founded in our town in 1939, our amateur baseball team draws a thousand people a night, all in a rural working class county in which cows outnumber people. These examples may seem home-hum, ho-hum to the placeless blowhards of the new nationalism. Well, in the words of the great Edward Abbey, be loyal to your family, your clan, your friends, and if you are lucky enough to have one, your community. Let the nation state go hang itself. <laughs> Next weekend, a couple dozen of us will gather for the 27th consecutive year to read from the sometimes unreadable works of our native son novelist, John Gardner. He's probably not even one of my 100 favorite writers. <laughs> he's dead, so I can say that. But he's ours as his literary star wanes is up to us to keep him alive. An odd footnote to this, of the regular attendees, a grand total of two, a Seneca Indian friend and me, are native to our county. The rest are, in one form or another, transplants, and this in a county with a stagnant, largely homegrown population. Much of the energy, even in the preservation of our cultural memory, comes from newcomers or non-natives. So you don't have to do these things in your hometown. Just follow the sage advice of Booker T. Washington and cast down your bucket where you are. Many ordinary people in the William Appleman Williams sense know that something is deeply wrong with the way we live. They are searching for, they desperately want to believe that in the motto of the excellent Plow magazine, another life is possible. Since I am a little American, as opposed to a cheerleader for national greatness, I want to focus on what seem to be little things. The machine of which Mr. Kingsnorth has written with such eloquence and passion is sometimes bludgeoning a blunderbuss, but it also works in insidious ways. It alters coercively our everyday behavior in ways that might seem trivial, but in fact are profoundly disruptive and displacing. This is not a new phenomenon. Though it accelerated as the United States became a world power under what Tom Brokaw's ghostwriter so lucratively termed the greatest generation. <laughs> now, some of the people I have loved best and admired most were born within that cohort, though they would have snickered at that self-congratulatory phrase. This was the generation for which bigness and progress were gods. It punished America with the consolidation of schools, the construction of the interstate highway system, the industrialization of agriculture in the get bigger, get out era. The greatest generation gave us the violence of urban renewal, which massacred downtowns and destroyed old buildings that carried a fund of meaning and memory. We got peacetime conscription, though peacetime became an anachronism on the order of the powdered wig, sarsaparilla and mapo. Now, when I was a boy, they even tried to change the way we measure. 
as gross an offense against everyday life as the wokester is trying to tell us which words we are forbidden to say and therefore which thoughts we are forbidden to think. The metrication of America was a project of that unholy alliance of big science, big business, and big government, which coalesced during the Cold War. We've been hectored for five decades now to cut off our feet and submit to the meter. <laughs> As though with the snap of a finger, the crack of a whip, the empire can make people adopt an entirely new system of measurement. Thank God for the populist resistance that has saved the 10-foot basket, the 100-yard field, the four inches of Jason Peters. <laughs> that probably sounds more impressive in centimeters. <laughs> Told you I'd get you. <laughs> when our daughter was in school, we told her to miss questions about metric measurements on purpose. <laughs> to hell with the leader and meter. Then again, we also told her to insist that Pluto was a planet. Um, no wonder she got such lousy grades in science. Alas, I, need, I see no signs of resistance to a more recent reshaping of our daily lives. This was driven home when, a few months ago, I was lolloping through suburban Washington, D.C.'s National Airport. I always liked the libertarianish South Carolina Congressman Mark Sanford for voting against renaming National Ronald Reagan Airport on the grounds that the nomenclatorial decision belonged to locals, not Congress. Anyway, I was refused service when trying to buy a bagel. It wasn't because of my race, sex, assigned at birth, or, or vaccination status. Rather, the eatery in question, which had no cash registers, accepted orders only from smartphones. As I have never owned a cell phone of any kind, let alone a smartphone, I was out of luck. I couldn't plead food insecurity, to borrow the silly euphemism of our day, for soon enough I would be dining on the nine almonds that constitute an airline repast. <laughs> but still, those of us who from principle or poverty refuse to spend our days caressing the wretched rectangle are fast being reduced to second-class citizenhood when we operate within the machine. The fact that I was in National Airport on a business trip shows that I am not exactly living off the grid. I'm no purist on the phone question. Most people I love use mobile phones, and the fact affects my affection for them not a whit. I understand the utility of these devices for those who labor in numerous jobs, among them tow truck operator, heart surgeon, prostitute, <laughs> excuse me, sex worker. Sure, there are social pox and a contributor to a collective mental health profile that makes our country's young female population resemble a nuthouse of prosaic Sylvia Plaths. <laughs> <clears throat> but to object to their ubiquity is, I am told, grousing about the inevitable. As Robinson Jeffers wrote, be angry at the sun for setting if these things anger you. This may seem a mere side issue in our delirious day, when the chicken hawks of the U.S. foreign policy coop flirt with nuclear war and penectomy has become the new tonsillectomy. But altering the most basic and routine patterns of daily life can have profound consequences. Must these damn things be required to engage in even the simplest transactions? 
I've since taken, by the way, to uh, borrowing my father's flip phone when I'd fly, try finding a working payphone in an American airport. On that same outing, I discovered that the entire Buffalo airport is now cashless. I couldn't even buy a newspaper with greenbacks. My money was no good there. So I endure the privation of missing out on airport bagels and chain newspapers. A first world problem, as the kids would say. Except as Kevin McCarthy, the real one, not the politician, screams at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you're next. Like a spilled bottle of ink, this uh, subordination of man to machine spreads everywhere. I've spent upwards of a thousand nights of my life watching minor league baseball games with my family and friends and neighbors. The community that is seated in the bleachers is far more important than the hits, runs, and errors on the field. But here too, the machine, or the war on human, trespasses. The new ABS, automated balls and strikes, or attacking baseball soul system, which I had the displeasure of observing at a AAA game in Rochester this past summer, stations an electronic device behind and above home plate. This machine determines balls and strikes. The call is transmitted to an earpiece worn by the emasculated home plate umpire, <laughs> who then gives a weak half-hearted signal. We are told by ABS advocates that transferring the most significant function of an umpire from human beings to a machine will ensure uniformity and standardization of the strike zone, as if bloodless precision is to be desired. I mean, it's only a game. Arguing with these computers will be as futile as playing backseat nag in your driverless car. Robot umps are no more amenable to remonstrance than Hale 9000 and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Dirt kicking and cap throwing rows, cat calls from the cheap seats, bad call disputes retold over coffee and beer to sons and daughters and friends. The lore of umpiring will be consigned to a rapidly dimming past. On a less clamorous, but even more important note, individual spectators are deprived of the pleasure of grousing, grumbling, or just bantering with neighboring fans over any of the 200 plus ball and strike calls. As the rationalization, the computerization of baseball at the highest level proceeds, ominously apace, we traditionalists, that is people who prefer humans to machines, must take refuge in the lowest minors, the independent leagues, the high schools, little league, and best of all, gloriously unorganized sandlot and pickup baseball. To renew or reinforce a commitment to grassroots sport is not a retreat or a surrender. It is rather an act of enrichment that permits a much fuller flourishing of sodality, togetherness, local loyalties, and healthy patriotism. The theme of the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago bears down on us. Science finds, industry applies, man conforms. <clears throat> They thought that was a utopian formulation, by the way. <laughs> Kirkpatrick Sale, author of Rebels Against the Future, a thoughtful history of the Luddite revolt against machinery hurtful in early 19th century England, notes that, quote, nowhere on the record is there any serious concerted machine-breaking challenge to the new technologies of the computer revolution, end quote. 
I'm no fan of the death penalty, but I would gladly kill Alexa. <laughs> die, witch, die. If the majors, the big leagues, uh, disappeared tomorrow, baseball would still be played where it matters. What if this pattern were repeated across the whole range of human experience? Nathaniel Hawthorne, like most of the great American writers, was not really on board with the nation's endless series of wars, even the good ones. On the brink of civil war, Hawthorne wrote a friend, quote, what do you think is going to become of us, of our republic, I mean? For my part, I'm ready for anything that may happen, knowing that if the worst comes to the worst, New England will still have her rocks and ice and be pretty much the same sort of place as heretofore, end quote. And what if today, should the American empire disintegrate, what would be left? The church down the street, the bar on the corner, the band playing in that bar, the baseball field, books, coffee shops, neighbors chatting on front porches or stoops, farm stands, the fields behind my house green every summer with cabbage or corn stalks. There would still be graves to tend, dogs to walk, beer to brew. True, the great men and the girl bosses would go the way recommended by William Stafford. It is time for all the heroes to go home, if they have any. Time for all of us common ones to locate ourselves by the real things we live by. Cell phones, metric system, robo-umps. These are little things, right? The way we measure, communicate, spectate. Except they're not. Our lives are the accumulation of little things. During the COVID lockdown, it was the little things, churches, coffee shops, bars, high school basketball games, the things that give our lives meaning and ballast and connection that our rulers forbade, while Netflix, Amazon, Google, Walmart, and their pestiferous ilk reaped obscene profits. I will, however, give the coronavirus credit for this. It got me out of going to Buffalo to see the touring company of Hello Dolly. Dark days call for silver linings. <laughs> when New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, relishing the near dictatorial powers he assumed with nary a peep of protest from the corporate media, proscribed gatherings of more than 10 people, I revisited one of the stranger literary artifacts of our haunted region, the book-length blank verse poem at midnight on the 31st of March by Josephine Young Case. Published in 1938, the book is about a little upstate New York village Saugersville, which at the stroke of midnight on the last day of March is suddenly, mysteriously, and irrevocably cut off from the rest of the world. No reason is given. What is two dozen homes, two churches, school, garage, mill, general store, and grange go dark? Josephine's father, uh, Owen Young, was the president of General Electric, and she takes great delight in turning off the lights in what I assume was a winking nod dadwards. The phones are dead. The roads leading out of town have disappeared. Search parties venturing beyond the settlement find only the endless woods, the silent hills, and nowhere any house or any sign of man there now or ever. There is only Saugersville in all the world. It's an autarkist dream. Recovering from the initial shock, the good folk of Saugersville take stock. They adapt, they relearn the old ways. Dairymen milk the cow, spy kerosene light, Horses replace farm machinery. Thirsty for beer, people grow hops. Even scoffers head to church. 
All is not sunshine and homey bliss. While the following winter influenza cuts through the village, lacking doctors and access to modern medicine, three residents die before the plague diminishes. It's look homeward or die, physically and spiritually. Here is all, resolves a resourceful young girl. There is no other place, no better place. I am reminded of a scene in Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, in which steelworkers played by Christopher Walken and Robert De Niro drunkenly exchange confidences after their friend's wedding on the weekend before they are to be shipped to Vietnam. De Niro asks Walken if he thinks they will ever return. Walken says, you know something? The whole thing. It's right here. I love this effing place. Perhaps I ought not to advert to a Hollywood movie, even one as good as The Deer Hunter. For among the blessings of the little village's severance from the outside is that mass-manufactured culture is no longer imported. Something is lost, yet something is gained. A character recalls, when Saugersville set fashions for itself, I mean to say we had our own ways here that weren't the ways of Centerfield or Steck, much less the ways of any city place where most of us had never been at all. Rum and Coke and Clark Gable no longer exist, yet the community consensus is that life is harder than it used to be, but troubles are more real. We're all of us more real, more alive, and Saugersville is more real, more like a town, not a gas pump on a concrete road. 11 months into the isolation, a young man of learning and ambition who chafes under the new dispensation has an epiphany as he skis the sloping, the sloping fields outside the village. I'm alive, and this is where I live. The realization fills him with joy and gratitude. May we in these strange days experience our own revelations. Thanks for listening. Off the Empire, on Wisconsin. That concludes the talks from the 2023 FPR Conference. Keep an eye out for news about the 2024 conference coming soon. But before we leave Madison, let me tie up one loose end. On an earlier episode, I shared about watching a blurry X and O in constant motion just outside the auditorium. What were actually stock prices looked fuzzy to me because I was not wearing my glasses. I was not wearing my glasses because... While at the hotel, the nose piece broke, producing a less-than-optimal metal-on-flesh experience. I eventually reversed course to avoid squinting at my speech, but we writers see analogies everywhere. The interaction of metal and flesh is another way to portray the quandary of King's Norse machine. As Ashley Colby just emphasized, there is no clear purity test. Most of us came to Madison by planes, trains, and automobiles, rather than by foot or donkey cart. We put our flesh in contact with metal on a regular basis. But what I believe binds porchers together is a willingness to say no at some point on the flesh-to-metal continuum, to question the myth of progress because we have become convinced that the metallic demands on flesh and soul are too great. The experience of gathering in the flesh on the University of Wisconsin campus was a positive one for me, and I hope to see you when we gather again. Until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair.
find your way home Find your way home